From Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in La Crosse. Artificial intelligence is making headlines around the world as new and rapid advances reveal its potential rewards and risks. AI systems are now able to perform mammoth computing tasks far faster, far more efficiently than human minds, incorporating learning, reasoning, and self-correction. Today, the possibilities seem nearly endless, maybe for some of us a bit unsettling. Artificial intelligence was the topic of a recent conversation on WPR's Route 51 with Shireen Seward. She talks with her guests about the advantages and disadvantages of artificial intelligence and how AI systems work. Joining Shireen are Vera Klikovkina, an associate professor of world languages and literatures who joined UW Stevens Point back in 2011. Professor Klikovkina was instrumental in developing UWSP's year-long series on future of artificial intelligence, which included a lecture on how robots could become pets, friends, confidants, even romantic partners, and talked about the similarities and differences between robotic and human relationships. Also with Shreen, we'll hear from Carrie Elza, an associate professor of media studies at UW-Stevens Point. Professor Elza has performed research in animation, children's media, film, and media history. Her AI presentation in the UWSP series traced the drive to represent artificial life through media technologies, from Edison's mechanical doll all the way to Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Here's WPR's Shireen Seward. Vera, I want to start with a point that immediately strikes me as I was as I was uh, introducing you. The idea that robots can become romantic partners. How is that a thing? The whole series was born from ideas of how we um, treat technology as helpers for us, uh, technology as mechanical caregivers, romantic partners. And um, Sherry Turkle, in her wonderful book, Alone Together, Why We Expect More from um, Technology and Less from Each Other, talks about this robotic moment, the moment we are ready to consider technology as potential confidence partners, romantic partners. Well, of course, if you're interested in love and sex with robots, I suggest that you read um, David Levy's book, where he makes um, the argument that we are ready psychologically to accept technology as much more trustworthy and more stimulating than humans. Of course, that's not what I want to hear, but um, that's his uh, argument. I don't think that's what I want to hear either. What about you, Carrie? Oh, no, no. <laughs> no. I think there's lots of problems here, and I think popular culture has covered a lot of that. So yes. we could get into that. Well, some people find artificial intelligence really frightening. They find it a little disconcerting. Uh, should we be scared? Well, you know, that's a very difficult question because, uh, you know, there's lots and lots of ways in which artificial intelligence has the potential. It's already making our lives better and has the potential to make our lives much better. But there's a darker side too, right, if the technology outpaces our ability to control it and understand it. So I think that, um, yes, there's reasons to be afraid, but also reasons to be excited too. And I guess that really begs the question, why do we need it at all? 
Well, first of all, let's define it. What is artificial intelligence? It's a um, compilation of algorithms that perceive information, process information, and synthesize it. So they mimic human intelligence, but of course it's not human intelligence because it doesn't have value attached to the information. Uh, people believe in general um, artificial intelligence, and that's, of course, definitely popular media trying to uh, convey the idea that they will be able to resolve all the problems, help humanity solve climate change problems, for example. But at this stage, what we have is compilation of algorithms. And because algorithms have no value systems, no societal um, value system, we are facing oppression by algorithms. And one book that, if you're interested in this subject, is phenomenal, is by Sophia Noble, who wrote a book on oppression of algorithms. She is a co-founder of um, UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. And so when she discovered that when for her daughter for a birthday party, she was looking for black girls, um, the first sites that came out were porn sites oh. because that's what algorithms associate black girls with. Wow. And so that's the premise of the book. If we are not careful, we are going to duplicate or even expand on oppressive, sexist, racist algorithms through AI. So one of the big issues is that um, a lot of these programs like ChatGPT and a lot of our AI art simulator, the AI art generators, um, scrape the internet. So they scrape what already exists, and that includes all of the garbage mm -hmm. that humans have put on the internet. And I like that term scrape mm -hmm. because that is what it does, and it implies some kind of violence too. I mean there's this – there's it's an amalgamation, right? But it's taking all of the stuff regardless of where it came from, and that's the basis of um, you know what it uses to spit out again. Um, so it's, it's uh, with all of, all of the kind of baggage that comes with that. UW Stevens Point is presenting a year-long series of free community lectures and film screenings that continue now through May. How did that whole thing come about? What, what was the, the idea behind having that series? It actually came from my students. I used to teach a course on women's empowerment uh, through media, and the last uh, module in that course was concentrated on um, – the Stepford Wives. And if you remember that book, uh, the whole premise is uh, creation of robots to replace women. And when students discussed that, they were so enthusiastic because this is their future. And I realized I have to develop this research angle in my um, arsenal. And then I talked to Carrie and we said, couldn't we come up with a series? And we did. And I... I'm so happy that we found many professors interested in this topic. And you can go to the website of the series and you can actually watch every single um, presentation 
uh, it's not only live stream, but it's also recorded. It's fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. In February, one of the films that was chosen for screening was Blade Runner 2049. This is a 2017 film, so six years old. And an October screening featured the 1982 version of Blade Runner. So, Carrie, why were these films chosen? And what did they tell us about artificial intelligence that's still relevant today? Oh, so much. I mean, both of those movies are very resonant with the issues that we're going to be dealing with in terms of artificial intelligence. Um, The first one asks the question, you know, what is humanity? You know, does the um, presence of memory and uh, the illusion of free will mean that you should be granted personhood, even if you're an artificial person? Um, and, and of course, the the first movie um, famously does not answer the question <laughs> as to whether Harrison Ford's Deckard is um, a replicant or not, and it leaves it to the um, to the viewer to figure it out. Um, but you know, there's a famous speech at the end of that movie that says, you know, all of this will disappear like tears on the rain. And the big question is, you know, where do all my memories go? Am I not, you know, am I not a person if I have, if I have memory, if I have experience that can't be duplicated by anyone else? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the second movie, um, Blade Runner 2049, um, introduces uh, the ethics of care as well, as Vera talks about um, uh, and, and talked about in her talk a little bit more in terms of the, the figure of Joy, who is a uh, artificial companion um, to Ryan Gosling's character. So she is um, a girlfriend. She's a wife. You know, she's a partner in every way. But she's not – she's embodied um, only when she gets a special, like, piece of um, hardware attached to her to create embodiment. But she she manifests all of those feelings of nurturing and care that specifically – Ryan Gosling's character needs and so she adapts to his needs Um, and she's perfect and she's beautiful and she has no flaws. And she's holographic so you can take her anywhere so yes definitely brings questions about um, new advancement in um, for example um, translation. Mm -hmm. Now you can have not only automatic translation but also holographic image of yourself translating uh, or using um, Google Translate, for example, to sound as you would sound only in a different language. So you get this seamless um, cross-cultural transference of yourself through a holographic image. Mm-hmm. I mean, so in a way, these movies are kind of training us for what we're going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it I hope we're not going to see at all. I mean, some of the issues that a lot of movies about AI bring up are flipping terrible. Yeah. Like, <laughs> cough, cough, matrix. Um, Stepford wise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is really scary, but then there's other ways in which we see this kind of um, augmentation of reality that, uh, that can give people what they need in many different ways. And some of those things are good, right? If companionship is um, elusive to you in some way and a machine is the best answer for you. It's hard to say no to that. You know, maybe this is going to to, to help somebody. I would still contradict because <laughs> there are billions of us on the planet. Fair. And guess what? That's fair. We have all the arms and legs that work. Uh, we can mm-hmm. speak. And if only we learn to connect with each other, maybe we can do a good job connecting, respecting, and honoring 
um, mm -hmm. humans that we are. So that's why I think the backdrop of ethics of care is much more important than simply ethics. Of course, legal questions of personhood to machines, if they make decisions, like let's talk about healthcare and mm -hmm. robots, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Or diagnosis. So if a machine makes a prediction of a diagnosis and it's wrong, and it's wrong not because of its algorithm, but about, for example, electricity glitch, who is responsible? So that's good ethical question, right? However, for me, what's more important and is to realize who is going to care for whom, why, for how long, and how it will be reimbursed. So who is going to be paid for that care? And if we don't answer these questions now and we try to replace humans with machines, we're going to struggle because machines will not want to take care of us. Mm -mm. When I teach the apocalypse class um, – oh, so that's how I got into all of this. It's because I teach a class on the apocalypse. Okay. And we do a whole unit on robots. Okay. And, you know, we watch part of the Matrix and all that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we have this uh, – I have this whole concern about, about whether if robots are not granted personhood – when they have self-awareness, what is going to happen after that? And so these are questions that, you know, coming generations are going to have to deal with. At what point do robots deserve rights? I think we have to deal with it now. Mm -hmm. We should not wait because then it's going to be too late. Um, again, the algorithms that we're thinking about right now, they are everywhere. Even your Outlook email the sorting process is done by algorithms. Um, shops use algorithms. So wouldn't you um, say that it's everywhere? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. You know, we, we have um, your Netflix, your Spotify. Um, I teach a, a capstone class, and I'm having to teach my students how to write their resumes with search engine optimization in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I have a friend who works at Trader Joe's, and uh, she was telling me yesterday that they use AI to order their products, you know, because the, the, the algorithms know what they need to order for the next week. Um, and so really all of this is everywhere. And so at a certain point, we are going to have to figure out what rights machines and software actually have. But it stems from the value system of efficacy and optimization. And if we continue to keep that as a value system, then we're not going to value humans because humans actually not as efficient as machines are. So then what do we value? Do we value connection? Do we value personal, um, original thinking, creative, uh, surprising behaviors? Or do we want something that is practical, efficient, and optimal? If that's what we value, then I don't think we will continue as humanity for a long time. Carrie Elza and Vera Klikovkin are speaking with WPR's Shireen Seward. Shireen hosts the program Route 51, which airs out of Wausau. If you'd like to reach out to us here at Newsmakers, you can always send us an email. It's newsmakers at WPR.org. That's newsmakers at WPR.org. We'll hear more from Shireen's and Route 51's conversation as we continue our discussion on artificial intelligence, the science that surrounds it, and the implications of recent developments, as well as what the future holds for the technology. 
Coming up, we'll discuss the ethical implications of AI. Plus, what is ChatGPT and could it possibly replace teachers, novelists, radio hosts? You're listening to Newsmakers here on Wisconsin Public Radio. From Wisconsin Public Radio, it's Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in our Southwest Wisconsin studios at UW-La Crosse. Today we're eavesdropping a bit on a conversation hosted by WPR's Shireen Seward from our central Wisconsin studios at UW-Stevens Point in Wausau. We're continuing our discussion on artificial intelligence with our guests, Associate Professors Vera Klikovkina and Carrie Elza from UW-Stevens Point. Once again, here's Shireen Seward. There is a lot of discussion on chat GPT. It's, you know, this artificial intelligence chat bot. So what is it and how do we try it out? Mm. Um, well, you, all you have to do to try it out is um, Google chat GPT. And you do have to, to sign up like you have to sign up. But I have. I have, mm-hmm. I have signed up. And it is um, – seductive is a word that I would use for it. Um, I actually did an experiment. So I signed up to do an experiment because I was going to introduce the film Blade Runner 2049. And I asked ChatGPT to write me an introduction to the movie, you know, with a couple of pieces of trivia, some compelling questions that the audience should consider while watching. And it did give me a relatively serviceable little speech to give at the beginning of the movie. But what I discovered was that it was bland. It was boring. It had no spark to it. And so it's pretty easy to recognize text written by chat GPT because it feels feels bland. It feels like it it doesn't have any imagination. Um, I actually actually found a a student um, who plagiarized um, an exam last semester. Really? And I caught it Um, because that's the thing. It's, It's precise prose. Um, It's structured perfectly like you would want an essay to Mm -hmm. be, um, but it has no spark of imagination. Um, ChatGPT functions by, again, scraping the internet. And so what it does is um, is it's pulling information from all over the place. So some of the information that it pulls and it spits out is actually false. Um, So a human is required for sure to vet the information just like a human is required to vet the information or peer review is required for Wikipedia, it's why we say you cannot use Wikipedia as a source in your research papers, right? Mm-hmm. But ChatGPT works on a conversational model. So you ask it questions, you give it prompts, and it gives you answers. And the whole thing can be structured like a conversation or you can just ask it to give you, you know, a document of some kind. Um, yes, it is terrifying. Um, and yes, it's going to get better and better. The new version, which I haven't tried yet, is apparently even better than the old version. Well, see, for me, uh, it was interesting to see the panic of uh, my colleagues when it came out because as language instructor, we experienced similar panic years ago with Google Translate Mm -hmm. because at first it was funny, it was uh, incorrect. But uh, 2016, when they came out with neural network and machine learning and suddenly Google Translate became so good, we started seeing students using Google Translate to 
translate the entire essays, and they didn't have any ethical qualms because they said, but it's my own text. I just wrote it in English, and then it translated in French or Spanish or Russian. And what we started doing with our colleagues, first say, you have to write the co-author, and your co-author is Google Translate because you did not produce this language on your own. And then you need to either memorize this language to make it your own, or you have to be able to produce something similar in a um, spontaneous situation, and that is not possible. So I think what is happening right now, we see big disruptors in learning process. A learning process takes time. You need this time in order to acquire information, process, and retain it, and then use it, apply it to different scenarios. It is also connected to decision-making. So if we put this to machines, machines will translate for us, write novels. Okay, granted, we have to do it in pieces, but it still can be done. Write um, essays for your exams. What you are doing, you are not processing information. You are not applying it, and you are cheating yourself short of the time needed to make the decisions, to really make connections, original ideas. How is it that I'm being good cop? You were going to be good cop and I was going to be bad cop. Um, but what, I, what I'm going to say is that uh, one of the potential uses of chat GPT is it, like so many different um, uh, aspects of AI is augmentation. And so chat GPT can be useful in the creative process by asking it questions that then spur other ideas that are human generated. And so a lot of people are talking about, yes, you can use chat GPT to write a novel, but you can't just ask, you can't just give it one prompt and say, like, please spit me out a novel with these specifications. You have to help it. It's in the ideation stage. You have to, um, you know, ask it questions that help you to build out a story and then you to think through the story structure. And then, yes, piece by piece, you can ask it the questions that you need in order to, and this is true of of a screenplay, too, and this is a problem that we're starting to see when I teach screenwriting. But the fact is that it's it's like it's it's here. So <laughs> we have to kind of use it ethically, ethically. We have to figure out how to use it in a way that makes the creative products that we produce better and not let it do the thinking for us. I'll give you two examples to think of it. Uh, for example, translation – Um, as a profession, has been radically changed by Google Translate or DeepL, which is another type of um, automatic uh, machine translation, is that it's no longer about translation. It's about Mm post-editing. So you look at the translation produced by the machine, and then you correct, you make it better because some of the um, linguistic uh, ideas were missed by the machine. But as humans, we have to realize that Any word is not an innocent word. You have connotation and denotation. Denotation is just the definition from the dictionary. But connotation is connected to emotions, feelings, value systems that we attach to this world that stands for representing bigger reality. And so if we forget about that, then we're going to, again, cheat ourselves short of appreciating reality and creating better reality for all of us. That's why I want to come back to the ethics of care. And 
Joan Tronta, who is a political scientist who wrote a wonderful book, Caring Democracy, Markets, Economy, and Justice. She asked the question of who cares for whom and why do we still have gendered care, meaning men get a pass not to care mm-hmm. because they produce, right, sure. and because they protect. Meanwhile, women are supposed to nurture because they're so good at it naturally, and therefore they should not even be paid for it because they are getting emotional benefits from caring. And that creates a big disbalance that we cannot come up with a democratic system that is actually going to be caring for all of us. I read something in the Harvard Gazette. It was a story that was published not too long ago. It said that AI has, quote, great promise but potential for peril. And they point to what they call virtually no U.S. government oversight that allows private companies to use AI software to make determinations about health and medicine, employment, creditworthiness, criminal justice decisions, without having to answer for how they're ensuring that programs aren't encoded with structural biases. So how big a problem is that? I don't want to say nothing about our, <laughs> um, all of our beloved government figures, mm-hmm. but um, I think that it's entirely possible that some of them don't even know how to use PDFs. Um, so I, I, here's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, what I'm trying to say is I'm concerned about – I'm concerned that the level of understanding at the highest levels of government does not match the speed at which these technologies are being developed in Silicon Valley. And there's a there was a, an editorial I read. Uh, I think it was an Ezra Klein editorial. So it was dark. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but But the argument there was that it's full steam ahead over there. You know, they're moving quick because the goal is to be the first to develop this, that, and the other. And it's, you know, this is a money issue too. You know, there's great, this is a gold mine, you know, and the development of these products is going to make a lot of people rich. And so there's no consideration of guardrails. And this is true of ChatGPT. It was leased upon the land in, what was it, November? With just no guardrails. Right. And you, you you were able to ask all sorts of questions. There's that famous um, – was it the Times article where the, the reporter asked all sorts of questions and and the, the, um, the, the uh, uh, chat GPT called itself – it was chat GPT or was it another one of the chatbots um, – called itself Sydney, right, mm-hmm. and said, yeah. I'm in love with you. Yes, and, and you're going to – you always your I, wife. And, it was, and here's <laughs> all the ways I would end the world if I could, you know, so <laughs> – Creepy. Um, and so that that kind of called uh, our attention to this fact that there needs to be regulation, there needs to be oversight. But my concern is that not enough people understand it to be giving it the kind of regulation that it needs. And our inclination um, is to you know let technology do technology's thing if it's going to make our lives better. And of course, this is how we get to Terminator. Well, but we also get to the idea of um, international regulation and also cross-cultural powers um, trying to harvest um, money pretty much, right? Because it's all about markets and um, data, big data, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're interested in learning about AI superpowers and the role of China, I think Kufu Li's book is phenomenal. AI superpowers, where he explains 
the role of China right now and how all these startups are so prominent in China. And it's, um, I would call it a technological experiment on a scale of entire country because they generate so much data and data is needed for machine learning. So they will be much faster at processing this. And um, I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the world. I mean, we could talk about the environmental impact as well when it comes to mining rare minerals, which I know also happens in China. And so all of this information, all of this technology is coming at a cost in so, so many different ways. Too fast. Mm -hmm. And we have to start thinking about it um, ethical design of AI and robots because it will sweep us too fast if we are not there to protect ourselves. Again, I am a bad cop right here, but... Um, I'll be bad cop too because I'll say, if only popular culture warned us about this. <laughs> if only. <laughs> well, I guess I wonder if you worry too about whether AI will only bring newer, faster, more frictionless ways to discriminate and divide us as humans at scale. What are your thoughts on that? Well, perfect examples. Again, um, I'll go back to Sophia Noble's book, um, Oppressions of Algorithms. They are everywhere in misrecognizing uh, facial features. Um, so white faces are recognized much more um, accurately than uh, faces of any other races. Why is that so? Well, who are the developers? Right. So you start asking these questions and then you realize that algorithms are not neutral. And that's, I think, um, the fear that I have. Mathematics, not very many people love math. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we should because it tells us that there is information. We can trust information, but information is not innocent and information is not objective or neutral. Therefore, we need philosophy, we, not, we need history, we need literature, media studies, because all of these disciplines help us to understand how to process this information mm -hmm. in well. the service of human society. And images are not neutral. I mean, way back in the 19th century, forgive me, um, uh, you know, the word stereotype comes from the printing process. And, you know, when we start getting the mass production of images in the 19th century, people get ideas about those images and images of people. And that's how we have the, the association of, of certain images um, or certain ideas with certain people is the spread of images. Um, so I, this is not, again, it's not neutral. And we could relate it to to the the, um, the prevalence of AI art generators and the kinds of images that they spit out. So there's major. I don't. This is this is the Facebook groups I'm a part of. Um, but there are major arguments happening in uh, groups that are all about AI art generation, about the types of images that get spit out and the types of images that we should be making. Because a lot of times when you ask um, a beautiful woman, you know, if you if you you ask um, Mid Journey or stable diffusion or whichever AI art generator you want to use, it's all, by and large going to be white. 
Um, it's going to have childlike features. Uh, you know, it's going to be really well endowed because what these systems are doing are scraping the images that are already on the internet. And that means that the images that already exist are just built upon and replicated infinitely. And so that's an important issue. If, if we're not actually generating new information here with the with these AI programs. Instead, we are replicating and synthesizing what is already there on the internet. And that means all of the human biases, all of the sexism, racism, everything is still there, just endlessly repeated. So we are duplicating systems of oppression through algorithms. Meanwhile, we're hiding this fact or the majority of population believes that it is not there because they get unburdened, for example, to look for information. Alexa will do it, right? Oh, hey, Google, Google will find this information. But are we giving up our own agency? I think we are. So the AIR generator groups that I talk about argues that, you no, know, I do have agency. I have agency in the prompt that I write. I can be more and more specific in what I ask these programs to deliver. And so my ability to speak to these programs is my agency. Um, so I, 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 have a, I have a hand in shaping what comes out. And so it maybe is an illusion of control. Um, maybe there, maybe there is some control, but ultimately, um, ultimately I think that we are kind of depriving ourselves of the ability to generate new information. Um, but maybe not, I don't know, like we're always building upon other people's idea. This is complicated. You know, I can't yeah. say for sure. It is complicated. That's mm -hmm. for sure. Carrie Elza and Vera Klikovkina are talking with Shireen Seward today on Newsmakers. They're both professors at UW-Stevens Point. It's a conversation originally aired on WPR's Route 51 out of Wausau. We're learning all about artificial intelligence technology and the way it's changing our world today. Ahead, more on the limitations of AI and what's next for the technology. If you've missed part of today's discussion or if you want to listen back to a previous episode of Newsmakers, find them all on our website. It's wpr.org newsmakers. That's wpr.org newsmakers. We're continuing our discussion on AI in just a moment. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. It's Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Ezra Wall in La Crosse. We're joining Shireen Seward and WPR's Wausau crew today for a very interesting conversation on artificial intelligence. Shireen is talking with Professor Vera Klikovkina and Professor Carrie Elza. They're both from UW-Stevens Point. Again, here's Shireen. What gaps remain in this technology? What can't artificial intelligence replace? Well, I think that one of the big things that AI can't yet do is um, be creative and generate things that are truly new and truly surprising. And I know that there are folks out there who are working on this, who are working on um, having AI mimic human perception to the extent of true creativity instead of just, um, you know, amalgamating everything that's already out there. But, you know, when I think about um, 
and Vera and I were talking about this earlier, this idea of going to um, going to a new place, going to Paris and using AI and, and you know, augmented reality system to show you the city, right? To, to that's, that, There's the Louvre. There's the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower was built by Gustav Eiffel, you know, um, and – it gives you a, a predictable set of uh, responses to images, right? You know, you see this, you see this. But what it doesn't have is surprise, is the joy of surprise. And, and, and yeah, Vera, Vera was talking about this. We use that uh, virtual reality to help us teach languages, or we hope that more students will take languages because now they can go to Rome, Paris, uh, Berlin, right, uh, through the comfort of their um, bedroom if that's where they are learning the language. But for me, what is lacking in that is the direct experience and application of knowledge where your entire body participates in that experience through senses, through surprise. For example, when you go to Paris and you discover there is a major strike in the metro and now you have to walk for two hours to get to Eiffel Tower, <laughs> that is a great surprise, but also a phenomenal linguistic moment to deal with unexpected situation and to use as much of language that you know, target language, to survive in that culture. The brain that is able to survive that situation gets such a boost of self-empowerment that can last you for years because it will remember that moment of survival, of confidence, of exceeding your potential. You cannot duplicate that in virtual reality. And so that's why I want to go back to the question of ethics of care. Because when first ethics of care appeared as a discipline, it was somewhat dismissed. And it was said, oh, it's a feminine types of ethics. We're not talking about real moral issues and values. But the question for me remains is that who cares for whom? We receive care and we give care on a daily basis. And if half of the population thinks that they should not care because as boys by the patriarchal system, they were taught not to show that they care. Meanwhile, girls should care even if they don't want to care, again, because the system told them they're natural at caring and they don't need to understand the system. They just should go along with it. We get short-ended by the system, patriarchal system, that is built on sexual imbalances. So instead of spending time on developing a new version of ChatGTP or Google Translate, why don't we talk about developing a system that is caring for all, that allows all of us to get in touch with every single aspect of our psyche and be free to care? Hmm. It makes me think, too, about um, both my children have robots as toys. My son has a Tamagotchi, which I feel very strongly about. Um, and <laughs> because he he hands it off to me to take care of. Oh, oh, it's hungry. It needs to be played with. Here, mom, do that. Um, and my daughter has this little panda, 
where you know you can you um you, it's like a baby you pet it it closes its eyes it it, it makes little cooing noises it it is it, it's just in a way designed to make her nurture. Um, and so I think about the way that my two kids, and I try real hard, I want you all to understand, <laughs> to not replicate gender imbalances in my house. But I think about the way that my two kids play with these two different, um, they are artificially intelligent. Um, and they give the impression of life, even if they're not real. Um, and I think about the way that my two children play with these two different robots. And I, 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 there's absolutely a, a gender element to that. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also we think that um, these mechanical caregivers will give us more time to do what? I don't know. But they will take away the burden of, for example, looking after little kids because they need stories to be read 20 times the same evening or elderly because they need to be reminded of taking their pills or they need to walk uh, – 20 steps, and we should wait patiently. But what it's doing is actually taking away the time from us that we could provide care and yet still be happy with what we do. For example, when we prepare meals for our elderly parents, maybe we're not talking to them, but we're still showing care. If a robot is there to take away these tasks, what will be left to us? to talk with an elderly parent who um, has dementia and who cannot continue a lively conversation, well, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Again, we are not able to provide care that is caring for both parties. Interesting. Well, and, and, and I not to change the subject here, but I know both of us have watched the film Megan lately yes. um, with, the, yes. with the killer robot. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the big thesis of that movie, right, is that this is a little girl who has experienced loss. And by giving her a robot to bond with after that loss, instead of actually bonding her, her aunt is um, depriving her of real emotional connection. And she's refusing to acknowledge that trauma. And the little girl is... Uh, has a serious problem because of it. This is the big idea. It's like human connection cannot be truly replaced. I'm so glad you brought this um, example up because I'm more interested in Gemma, her aunt, right? Mm -hmm. So she's overworked, right? She works crazy hours. She's overburdened by everything that she needs to do. She's overstimulated by all the technology that surrounds her and that she creates, and she's undercared for. She doesn't have a partner in her life. Um, she doesn't use kitchen because she never cooks for herself and so on. Do we recognize ourselves in that image? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so her solution to that problem was to find a mechanical caregiver for Katie, her niece. Here, you, ha you can have this toy that will be always on, and then I will be unburdened, and I can continue to do what? The same activities that will make me overworked overwhelmed and overstimulated and undercared for. Mm -hmm. Is that the society we want to continue creating? No. <laughs> and, and, it, and it was not a, a solution for Gemma. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, she, yeah. her, her world imploded, really. And that's exactly what Megan was doing. She was optimizing her role of protecting the little girl. 
Mm-hmm. And that took her very far. I don't want to um, tell people what happens in the movie unless they want to watch the movie. I but mean, it's a horror movie. You can imagine I, what happens. Yes, I yeah. feel like it's not – I mean, I'm not going to say what happens. But I think that if you've seen anything ever, you can guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. What kinds of messages um, in in film have – have warned us that that we may uh, that we may be seeing some pretty devastating consequences of these things. I mean, what more is to come? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I don't want to go back to the Matrix. Um, <laughs> I, well, there's a lot, right? There's yeah. a whole history of robots in film, and Vera's actually teaching a class on this this semester. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you could go back to Metropolis. Um, the the robot is. Um, foments revolution uh you can go back to the matrix where the big problem and you don't actually see this in the the movies themselves but if you watch the animatrix which is gives us you the backstory of how we get to that point in the matrix before the first movie um the big mistake that was made is not giving the ai rights <laughs> the robots are not uh, acknowledged as a sovereign nation and so what happens is that uh you know war ensues um because actually what happens is that the robots start producing products that are better than the things that the humans can produce and so the humans buy the products that are made by the robots and so the human economy tanks and there's fights for resources and like hijinks ensue um, but all of these movies are warning us that the identi- identity of AI is going to be one of the most paramount um, items of importance. When do we grant them personhood? When do we give them legal rights? When do we acknowledge that they are coexisting with us on the planet as other beings? And I think that uh, increasingly that is something that the gen- gen- before we know it, um, generations are going to have to deal with. It's unfathomable to me to think about giving robots legal rights or to recognize them in that way. And yet it's a theme that comes up time and time again. Uh, When is it appropriate? I think now because with rights, you always have a set of responsibilities, right? You can have someone uh, or something legally accountable for their actions. And that could be a safeguard for um, things like, you know, robot revolutions and demise of humanity and so on. But we also need to think that um, media and arts has always been the ideational um, lab to help us imagine what future can be. So, for example, Ex Machina, it's a 2014 movie, right? But they talk about wetware brain. So that what um, makes um, Ex Machina so um, indistinguishable from a human. I just read this article. Um, University of John Hopkins uh, is trying to use brain cells for the computer, and they call it biocomputing, and they claim that it will be a much faster and more agile computer. So my question is why? Why should we do that? (laughs) Why do we want to do that? Why do we want the computers to be creative? Why can't humans be creative? Why do we want to create machines that replicate and replace human thought processes? Um, I think we, we should just um, burn it all down. No. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think we're ever going to get to that point that when it, when we're this is replacing human thought completely? I mean, or or 
interfering so much with humanity that that our our whole imagination of what life is is going to be so different. So there's one more movie mm-hmm. um, that I think is worth bringing up in this regard, and it's the 2006 Mike Judge film Idiocracy. And in this film, um, no one's really running the ship. There's there's AI um, who run multinational corporations. And because humans have ceded all decisions to machines, human um, intelligence has decreased at such a, such a rapid pace that no one can think anymore. And so, you know, this is a, a movie where, you know, somebody from 2006 finds themselves 500 years in the future and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're the smartest person in the whole world. And, um, but but that's the fear, right, is if we cede decision-making, if we decede, if we cede the, the production of um, information and creativity and all of these things to machines, then what happens to us? Do we then uh, – does something atrophy? Do we, do we then not have the ability to think in the same way? Do we lose our autonomy? Absolutely. And I think um, another movie, uh, one of my favorites, Her, that brings the idea of um, AI evolving so rapidly and, and so effectively that it wants to leave humanity because humanity is no longer interesting. And when I showed to my students, of course, they were very disheartened, said, oh, well, thank you, Professor, for giving us another fear of rejection and now from technology. <laughs> Well, I want to circle back just briefly. We don't have a lot of time left, but uh, we talked about the the race and gender bias. Is there a way that AI could perhaps uh, make advances to to erase those kinds of biases? Is that also a possibility? Uh, well, I think people are working on this. Um, and I mean, especially when we keep getting new versions of the AI art generators, um, it, there are people who are actively working to try to r- reduce the amount of stereotyped images that are produced from generic prompts. Um, so yes, I mean, I'm sure that there is. And it, it takes minds far greater than my own to figure out what that process actually looks like. Um, but I, I know that for, for as many people who are disregarding this in Silicon Valley, there are plenty of people who are also thinking about it and actively working against it. And that book, Algorithms of Oppression, is a great place to, to think about the what actually can be done to, to combat this. And the main argument at the end of the book is um, Sophia's Noble saying an app cannot solve social injustice problems. We are here to solve that because um, – we truly need to appreciate diversity, uh, truly need to appreciate different cultures, learn from different cultures. And it's Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today we've been listening to a conversation hosted by WPR's Shireen Seward. She's been talking with UW-Stevens Point professors Carrie Elza and Vera Klikovkina about artificial intelligence. If you'd like to hear that conversation again, or you could check out previous episodes of Newsmakers, they're all on our website. Just go to WPR.org slash Newsmakers. That's WPR.org slash Newsmakers. Remember, there are multiple opportunities to hear Newsmakers every week. We're on Fridays at 10 on the Ideas Network 90.3, and then Friday night at 7 on NPR News and Music 88.9. And we're always online at WPR.org slash Newsmakers. Production help today from Joy Ratch Kramers, Kate Springer, Rick Ryer, and of course, Shereen Seward. 
I'm Ezra Wall. Join us again next time for another Newsmakers right here on Wisconsin Public Radio. Thank you.